Well, good morning, church family. It is uh, my privilege to say for the final time in this pulpit that it has been my joy to serve as one of your pastors. As you heard this week, uh, we're embarking on a new journey with Ministry to State, uh, our denomination's outreach to Capitol Hill. And uh, ever since Jess and I were married in 2014, we've lived on the Hill and uh, this ministry has been one that we've long had personal affection for as it's cared for Jess and her time in the last 15 years in government. And we do feel that God has strategically positioned us for this ministry and to continue partnering with you as we make disciples who make a difference in the halls of Congress and beyond. I'm eternally grateful to you and for the time that God has given me to serve our congregation. Thank you for welcoming me in and encouraging us as a newly married couple. For praying for me, uh, for forgiving me, for leading me, for crying with me. Thank you for being my mother and my father, my grandparent, my brother and sister and friend. Thank you for teaching me how to look at death and not be afraid. And thank you for all the ways that you've loved all my girls. We're not going far, and we're still not sure what this means for our church home, but we will always be family. I'll never forget when I was uh, walking through with one of our senior saints when we were planning her funeral service. Who would do the eulogies? What would the service order be like? She said, at some point, you're going to have to stop talking about me and start talking about Jesus. So that's what we're going to do now. Yes, ma'am. Let's do that. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Father, what a beautiful reminder of your love for us in Jesus that we just sang. That's the desire of our time together that we would see Jesus. See his love for us. That's our goal week in and week out to comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth of your love. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us through your word, make it alive in our hearts, we pray. Amen. Today, as I enter this pulpit, every time we do, we see this plaque that says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And it's Him and it's Him alone that we fix our eyes together this morning, starting in verse 24. So here's the plan. We're going to enjoy these two uh, beautiful stories together and see two things that they teach us along the way. But the first thing that we see in verse 24 is that Jesus is on the move. Verse 24, Jesus arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. We know where Jesus had been. He'd been in Galilee. He'd been feeding thousands of people, healing people, walking on water, generally schooling the religious leaders and blowing their minds with his amazing power over the world. But this is a turn in the story where he takes a turn north to Tyre and Sidon. Some of our uh, church members just returned from a trip there in modern-day Lebanon. And this is an incredible moment in redemptive history. 
Tyre was not a place that was kind to God's people. If you remember the story of Ezekiel and the king Ahab and his wife Jezebel, she was from Tyre. 1 Kings 16, 31. There's this great children's book that our girls love called The God Contest, where we see Yahweh and Ezekiel, his prophet, battling the Canaanite god, Baal. And that's where Jesus is going. He's going to this place, this unclean, unholy land, leaving the promised land, going to the other side of the tracks, you could say. But this is no accident in the history of the world because a thousand years earlier, a couple brothers, the sons of Korah, wrote a psalm and imagined what God's kingdom would look like. You can read about it in Psalm 87. Of course, Israelites would be included there, but also outsiders as well. It says, among those who know me, Tyre. Jesus is on the move. And he is on the move to bring citizens of all kingdoms, all nations under his dominion and authority. This is good news that Jesus is called to bring his grace to people like you, people like me, people of Israel, people outside there. He makes his enemies friends. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And this marks a beginning. It's always been part of God's plan to include this people in his own In verse 24, continues, Jesus entered a house and he didn't want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. We get these beautiful glimpses in the pages of scripture of the humanity of Jesus. Again, he's tired. He wants to kick his feet up, but he can't avoid the paparazzi that seems to surround him at every turn, even in the north where he's known by the Hellenistic Greeks there, perhaps. He's known. And so it says, verse 25, immediately a young woman, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, came and fell down at his feet. Again, Mark's favorite word, immediately in this story, we see the pace an anxious mother falls at Jesus' feet. And her daughter has been possessed by a demon. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, you've you've heard the impact of demon possession on individuals, controlling their bodies, self-harm, their minds out of control. Does it sound like demon possession is still strange to you? The answer is yes. It totally should be. It is weird. That 80s favorite show on Netflix is not called, called Totally Normal Things. All right, this is strange demon possession. And so verse 26, we hear more about the characters in this story. We see that there's a woman who was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. So enter mom. We hear a little bit more about her story. And in this society, women were traditionally margined marginalized, on the fringe. And so she's got at least three strikes against her. She's a Gentile. She's a Syrophoenician. She's a woman from the wrong part of town, 
unclean, all three strikes against her, and she's desperate. You can imagine if you're a parent, knowing the desperation, you would do anything to help rescue your child from sickness. And how do you picture Jesus responding to this woman who's pleading with him, Lord, help my little daughter? We see his response in verse 27. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You're supposed to ask, wait, what? We expect to see tender Jesus moving towards her, but you're not reading it wrong. Jesus calls her a dog. Now, this is typically the moment where I sweep in and tell you that that Greek word is really an affectionate word for a cute little puppy. It's meant to be a term of endearment in the ancient Near Eastern world. No, this is not meant to be an encouraging word to her. It sounds as if Jesus is saying, you are not worthy of my time. Get in the back of the line. Now, what do we do with that? How do we make sense of Jesus' severe reply to her? The answer is context. Context, context, context as we approach God's word. Because most commentators agree Jesus' severe words here are an opportunity, a test of her faith. And how do we know? Because we read the end of the story. Look at verse 29. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. So the story ends with a miracle of faith and healing. Healing. She is restored. The demon is cast out of her body and this seemingly marginalized Gentile woman is held up for her glorious faith. Verse 30, the woman didn't waste any time. She's not sticking around as excited as she is to be with Jesus. She goes home immediately and finds her child in bed and the demon gone. So what is this great statement of faith, we ask? We see it in verse 20, 28. How do we get from insult to miracle of faith of healing. We see this answer in her confession. She answers Jesus's severe words with these, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And so the first thing we see this passage teach us is that God's grace is sufficient first thing we see this passage teaches us is that God's grace is sufficient. Jesus calls her a dog and her reply is masterful. Two words, yes, Lord, amen. It's true. Her statement of faith is her unworthiness. That's all that she brings to the table. She didn't try to defend herself or control the situation. She simply confesses it's true. 
And her boldness is beautiful and is rewarded by her Savior with healing and faith. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs because she understood that even a crumb of God's grace was sufficient for her. I take your insult as a compliment, Jesus. As the great theologian Jim Carrey said in Dumb and Dumber, so you're telling me there's a chance. (laughs) I see you, Jesus. And this is really what Jesus is saying to Paul later in, in 2 Corinthians when he encounters him and he says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Amen. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And that is the same call for us as well. We must do the same. We don't come to the king's table with any rights. We ought to come like this Syrophoenician woman, desperate, in need of healing and God's redeeming grace. And of course, the beauty of the gospel is that there are not just crumbs. God's grace is sufficient, but it is also abundant because he provides a feast for us, a table that we see pictured at the end of Revelation where we will feast together, a banquet sufficient and abundant for our good. That is good news that all we have to do is to say and confess Yes, Lord. And so when shame or guilt creeps in, all we are called to do is to remind ourselves that we're just dogs. But even the dogs find crumbs at the children's table. The crumbs will be enough because those crumbs of grace overwhelm the great stain of sin. That's part one of our story. We see the beautiful, sufficient grace of God. But part two, we see and pick up in verse 31 and 32, where we read about the man who's returned um, to the region of Decapolis. Jesus has gone a roundabout way and he's found a man who's deaf and mute. And some friends have gathered and begged him to lay his hand on him. There's so many beautiful personal stories that we see. Some miracles are often done in public, but we see Jesus' tender, personal touch of this man because he, it says, we're told, he pulls him away on his own. He's not trying to make a spectacle of the man. He takes him aside privately and he touches him. He put his fingers into his ears and he spits and he touches his tongue. Intimate details were told in this story of healing. And we see where this power comes from, right? If you're looking for where the magical saliva uh, heals, that's not the point because verse 34 and 35 says where the power comes from. Because Jesus looking up into heaven says, he sighed and said to him, be opened. 
and his ears were open and he is able to speak again. This is an amazing story. An amazing story of God's grace touching the lips and the ears of this man, touching him certainly physically, but spiritually as well. Mark's gospel is painting a picture of the Christ, the Messiah. This is the one who the prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 35 when he wrote, Then the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. This is Jesus. This is the Christ, the Messiah, who has come, who is doing this, who is healing by his hand and his word. And so the second thing that we see this passage teaches us, and may we never lose sight of this, is that God's grace is amazing. God's grace is amazing. Jesus goes after the Syrophoenician woman. He goes after the deaf and the mute man. He goes after the religious types and the heart of hearts. He goes after you and me. It's astonishing. Everything that he is doing is beautiful. And just as the woman teaches us that we bring nothing to the table, this man is doing the same. And again, this is the good news. That we don't have anything to bring We are deaf and mute to the things of this world apart from the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, touching our eyes, our ears, our lips, so that we might profess, yes, Lord, and understand who we are. Verse 36 and 37, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, I honestly don't know what to do with this prohibition and them, again, not listening to Jesus, but going to tell everyone. You can sort of understand um, why. We've talked about it a little bit in this series. There seem to be some practical implications for why Jesus is saying, don't tell this story yet as the crowds continue to grow. But the result we can see is clear. The result is that the people are astonished. They're amazed. He's doing all things well. They're amazed at who this man is. As they ask in their hearts, is this the Messiah? The one that we've hoped for? And I wonder if we this morning would find ourselves as amazed and astonished as they. Or do you find yourself at times like me, jaded? Even expecting that I would have a seat at the table. I'm worthy enough. But then that old hymn, Rock of Ages, comes to mind. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But the truth is, we cling to other things at different times. We try to justify ourselves or our sin. 
But that's the great paradox of the gospel. If you think you're well, then you'll stay sick forever. If you think you can see, you'll stay blind. If you deny the sin diagnosis, your spiritual tumor will only grow. But if you, if we are able to, like this man and this woman, confess, Lord, it's true, my unworthiness. What an amazing transformation that will be as we respond to the challenge that Jesus gives. There's really only two responses. Faith and amazement or hard-heartedness and being unconvinced. When we see the brokenness, when Jesus sees the brokenness around him, we see that he sighs because he knows the path that is set before him. He knows the price that he is ultimately going to have to pay in order to make us worthy. Because it's by his death on the cross and his sacrifice of atonement that we are made worthy. It's a beautiful transfer when he takes on our sin and we take on his righteousness. As the people said, he is doing all things well and will one day in the new heaven and the new earth say, Behold, I am making all things new. And until Jesus comes again, let's remind one another that God's grace is sufficient and never lose sight of how amazing God's grace is. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we don't bring anything today but our sin, and we ask for your forgiveness and grace. Would you touch our hearts? Would you heal us by the power of your word? May we be more like this Syrophoenician woman and know that even the crumbs of your grace are enough and say yes Lord what you say is true we thank you for your son Jesus and the grace that he provides through his death and sacrifice I pray this in Jesus name Amen